All right, we're going to turn to the scriptures. We are in Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you and would like to follow along, we'll read a text, Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. Let me go ahead and read the text. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll charge in. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there, this is referring to Jesus. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Father, take these words and use them to speak to our hearts the nature, the intent behind these words, what we have recorded, what we've just read. Lord, grow us as disciples through and with this text for your glory. Amen. The gospel according to Mark, as we've been studying it week by week, if it is accomplishing its goal, you and I should, by this point, be gaining a greater and higher view of who Jesus is. That's what's intended to go on here, that our view of Jesus just keeps getting higher and it just keeps getting better. Jesus becomes wiser and more powerful beyond what we could imagine. The more we read these accounts and what Jesus said and what he did, the intent is that our hearts would be more and more impressed with him, that our view of him would only increase and, and go up, and that that view of Jesus would invoke in us the only reasonable response to him, which is worship, humility, surrender, obedience. In light of who he is, nothing else truly makes sense as far as our response to him. And I hope that's the case with every one of you. I hope that's happening, even if you've known the Lord for, for decades, that even as we're going through these verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking with fresh eyes at who Jesus is, that your view of him is only increasing. But it's not always the case. There is another side to looking at Jesus. So while some hear and believe, while some hear and receive, there are others who hear and reject. As odd as it might sound, the good news generates both an acceptance that leads to salvation and a rejection that leads to condemnation. 
you remember the story at Jesus' birth about a devout man named Simeon. He laid it out well when he saw the baby Jesus and when he had been praying for this moment much of his life and he, and he prayed when he saw Jesus as an infant, now you are letting your servant depart in peace from my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. But he went on to say, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The context of our text that we just read that we're going to be speaking about this morning is the disciples of Jesus are right on the verge of being sent out, which is part of being a disciple. You hear about Jesus, you meet Jesus, you have a high view of Jesus, you surrender to Jesus, you become his disciple. When you become a disciple, you get sent out as a disciple and that is just about to happen but at this point jesus takes them to his hometown because before they go out they need to understand this reality some people receive this good news and some people reject it some people have faith and others refuse to believe Oftentimes, those who reject Jesus are the closest to you. This message is about you and I understanding the heart of unbelief. We have to face this reality. Some people have it in their heart not to believe. And as disciples, we need to understand this is a reality that we come up against, that we encounter as we express our faith, share our faith. There are some that simply will not believe. If we don't understand this, if we don't realize this, we could easily become so dismayed and so discouraged as we're trying to convince others of what we know to be so true and so good and so good them and yet we see people refusing to receive this good news we need to understand as disciples this happens and we need to be able to move on and continue on the mission and in the calling that God has given us without ourselves being infected by that unbelief without ourselves being so dismayed and so discouraged by it and we gain this by realizing and seeing that Jesus himself brought his message and had people reject it to his face. We want to take this text and identify some things about the heart of unbelief so that we can realize on the one hand how destructive and how deadly it actually is and so that we can respond to it appropriately so break it down like this for you this morning a heart of unbelief first asks all the wrong questions and secondly a heart of unbelief is blinded by familiarity and then finally a heart of unbelief keeps us from the power 
of God. First, the heart of unbelief asks all the wrong questions. So when Jesus returns to his hometown, he goes into the villages of Nazareth and he begins to preach in the synagogues. We're assuming at this point that this is Jesus' return to Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 records Jesus' first going to Nazareth, to his hometown. And this is where his ministry began. And he goes into the synagogue, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he basically declares, I'm the one who came to set the captives free. They were so upset with him. They dragged him out of town. They were trying to throw him down a cliff to kill him. That was the response of his hometown. That's where his ministry began. He evoked such a strong sense of opposition and unbelief from the people that grew up with him. They tried to kill him. Now here in Mark 6, it appears to be a return visit, a return visit with the disciples. Jesus already knew what was going on there. He'd already had this experience with the people that he grew up with. He knew where their hearts were at. So he's training his disciples. Guys, you got to see this. You got to experience this because you got to be ready for this. So come with me. We're going to Nazareth again. The people who knew him responded with a series of questions. It says they were astounded. Now we've seen this word before in our study, but every time it comes up, what, what it's always about is people are seeing Jesus and they're astounded at Jesus. They're amazed at Jesus. They listen to his teaching and says, this is amazing. His t- he teaches like no other. He has this authority. He's so sure and he's so right and the, and the wisdom is, is beyond what we've ever heard or seen before. Jesus is amazing. And then he's doing these miracles. He's healing the sick. Lepers are cleansed. Lame people are walking. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. And it says the people were astonished. They were amazed. But here, it seems to be an amazement of an entirely different kind. Whereas prior to this, all the amazement was leading to this major question of the book of Mark Who is this man? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves would obey him? That's the kind of amazement that we've seen so far. And now we get questions a little bit more like, and who does he think he is anyway? Those kinds of a question, that kind of amazement. They were astonished at him. We know this guy. Who does he think he is? How can he make these claims? And so the questions begin to unfurl from them, and they begin to lay out, all these questions. Now listen, questions can be good. Questions can be bad. I realize all of our third grade teachers told us there's no such thing as a stupid question, which is completely untrue. There are plenty of stupid questions, but given the context of third grade, it's okay to just presuppose for little kids, get them inquiring, get them learning. It's okay to say there's no such thing as a stupid question. But there are good questions And there are bad questions, and it comes, the goodness or the badness comes from our hearts. Good questions can be used to draw us nearer to Christ. That is the question that Mark lays out. Who is this man? With a sense of amazement, 
He has impressed me. It causes me to ask the question, who is he really? And so I press in to Jesus to know him more, to find out more about who he is. That's a good question. That's a great question that leads a person deeper and deeper into more truth. But then there are questions that come from a heart of unbelief that are questions of a different kind. They're actually questions that are used to point one direction in order to avoid another. They are questions that are designed to actually cover up the truth. It's a little bit of a magician sort of sleight of hand. Isn't he this, the carpenter? Yes, looking at the carpenter only to avoid who he really is. The questions were designed to distract and pull attention from the truth. Questions that are leading a person further away from the reality, further away from the truth. The wrong questions begin. Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? First line of questioning. Where did he study? Who taught him? seminary did he go to anyway you know you can tell a lot about a preacher about what seminary they went to who taught this guy who did he sit under who are his favorite authors who does he listen to who instructed him it may be well true that jesus actually lacked the kind of credentials that his listeners were looking for I can't say that for sure, but it's quite possible. He simply didn't have the credentials. But those questions about his credentials and his background and where did he study, those were bad questions because they diverted your attention away from the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. What are Jesus' Credentials. You ask, where did he study? Um, here's his credentials. He's the guy that cures incurable diseases. He's the guy who commands demons to go and people are set free. He's the guy who tells winds and waves to quiet down. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the nature who upholds the universe of the word by his power. Those are his credentials. And you say, where did he study? Where did he go to school? Who taught him these things? I'm not sure we're going to believe this guy if he doesn't have the right degrees or the right diplomas or come from the right seminary. They go on, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, it's unclear whether they're talking about miracles that they actually witnessed take place. It says he did very few miracles here, but his fame was spreading wildly about the miracles that he did. So it certainly could be that these folks were just responding to the reports of the miraculous things that Jesus was doing, but the question that comes out of a heart of unbelief says, how does he do these things? Never mind what he's doing. Let's not get too fixated on what he's doing. This was like the scribes that we read about a few weeks ago. Well, we think Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the devil himself. 
So never mind that the person has been set free. The person here who has been possessed is now sitting in their right mind and completely set free. Well, never mind what took place. We want to talk about how it took place. We want to analyze how he got this power or where this power is coming from, and we suppose that it's not a good thing. The miracles that Jesus did were designed, they were done intentionally to reveal and verify who he was. This is the purpose. This came out well with, if you remember the story of John the Baptist when he was in prison and he was experiencing some doubts and he sent his disciples to Jesus to just, could you just verify, just, I need to hear it again. Tell me the speech again. Are, are you really the one? And Jesus responds to his disciples, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John, how do you know? You know by what I've done. Look at the miracles that I've done because those miracles were done for that very purpose, to verify, identify, confirm who I am. There's a lot of questions going on, going around about Jesus. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. Asking questions is a good thing how you're answering them or what the heart behind those questions is actually very important. You could, with an inquiring heart, with a faith-filled heart, say, can I really trust the Bible? Did Jesus really have to die for my sins? Is Jesus actually the only way to God? Those can be great questions, and you can inquire, and you can press in, and you can look to Jesus, and you can look to the scriptures, and you can come up with some fantastic answers, some very helpful and profound answers to those questions. Like Shane Becker is leading our teen ministry now, and they're just starting in on a, on a book from Rebecca McLaughlin, 10 questions that every teen should ask about Christianity. Great questions difficult questions, questions that are often asked out of a heart of unbelief in order to refute who Jesus is, to deny Christianity, and yet good questions if you press in to the Lord for those answers. Sometimes the questions are asked from a heart of unbelief and they're only designed to divert attention away from the truth. We'll move into our second point, although the questions continue to flow, but now the questions just shift about how familiar they were with Jesus. Unbelief is blinded by familiarity. Isn't this the carpenter? This preacher, this miracle worker, wait a minute. Isn't he the carpenter? That word could mean carpenter or builder or handyman. So he made things and he fixed things in the very village where he was now preaching in the synagogue. And their point was simply this. 
He was just the handyman. He fixed the gate on my stable. So he can't be who he's saying he is. Who does he think he is now coming in, teaching us in the synagogue and doing all these mighty works? Wait a minute, we know him. He's just the handyman. He's the fix-it guy. He's the carpenter, and we all grew up with him. The heart of unbelief says, because we know of his humble beginnings, we know he can't be the Messiah. He's just Jesus. They were so familiar with him. They couldn't, they wouldn't take him seriously. The heart of faith sees something entirely different. The heart of faith looks at Jesus that you mean he took on humanity, came into the world under humble circumstances, worked as a carpenter in a little village in Nazareth, had brothers and sisters. Isn't it an amazing thing that the Savior humbled himself and entered into our world under such common, plain, mundane circumstances, entering in to our world so that he could come and save us. They move on. Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, most would agree this was sort of a, a derogatory comment to refer to him as the son of Mary as opposed to the son of Joseph. So using the mother's name as opposed to the father's name meant something. It was a little out of the ordinary. It was a really, it was a way of sort of casting aspersion upon his credential, his identity, his family. Because you know, you know I heard, you know the pregnancy and the marriage and the date and the, when the baby was born and when they got married, so just a little suspicious if there wasn't a little bit of problem going on there, you know, that was the word on the street. And so they cast aspersion by identifying him as the son of Mary, fixed on his natural setting. We know his family. But of course, faith, faith looks, looks at his birth, miraculous, immaculate birth conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus came into the world as a human, born of a woman, but because conceived by the Spirit, not with a natural father, in order for God to intercept the curse of Adam and bring into the world a new and second Adam, not directly from the seed of man, but born of a woman. So you see the question of unbelief detracting, hiding, blinding from the truth, the amazing truth that gives us even a higher view of Jesus. And Jesus summarizes all what's going on here with this old proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. A prophet is not without honor except, I suppose these sentences with all these double negatives in are meant to cause you to kind of slow down and try and think. I don't know how many times I've read that statement, I have to stop and just think, now wait a minute, whose honor, which negative, where are we? Okay, I think, I think I got it. 
people who know the prophet personally, who grew up with the prophet, are less inclined to honor him. You, you knew that. It took me a while. I'm just catching up with you. That's all. That's all that's going on here. Jesus identifies himself as a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled all these offices, and yet the prophet, he identifies here as a prophet because the prophet is the man that God uses to speak through, that the message of God comes to the prophet and to the people, and that's the role that he's in. And there's a long history in Israel of rejecting God's prophets. Jesus is from above. But an unbelieving heart can only see things down below. Unbelieving heart can only look on a horizontal plane, only on a natural level. Picking apart the details. Wait a minute, who is he? Where did he come from? Where did he study? Who's his mom? Don't we know his family? The people who watched him grow up found it difficult to see beyond their own familiarity with him. Familiarity can stir up unbelief in us as well. Oftentimes, growing up in the church, we can become so familiar with Christianity, so familiar with the church, that it becomes a distraction even to sort of moving us. And Caitlin made references, even when it's challenging in the church. And can you imagine if all you could see, if all you had were natural eyes, if all you could see was just human relations, human interactions, if you couldn't see any of the spiritual truths that Jeff talked about with communion, if you couldn't recognize what was going on spiritually, but all you did was, oh, there's just a group of people, they file in on Sunday morning, they stand, they sing some songs, they sit, they listen. What's that all about? Why would anybody choose to use their day off and do that? If all you're going to do is look at sort of a natural, horizontal view of things, and you can't see what God is doing in and through it, it can provoke in our hearts unbelief. We are just common people. And we get to know each other, and we realize we're just we're common people. But what's amazing is the grace of God in you. I interviewed these four women that joined the church and sat, and I walk away from these conversations. I think it's just amazing the grace of God in you. I loved hearing your story, how God worked, what he did, how he changed you, how he touched you. But if we fail to see the grace of God at work in each other, in the church, we become so disillusioned with just how human we all are, with just how common it all is. Third point, unbelief keeps us from God's power. It's said in our text, he could do no mighty works there. A strange thing to say about Jesus. Matthew states it a little bit differently. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I think it's important that the way Mark phrases it, that we not understand that to mean Jesus was sapped of his power and incapable of doing miracles. That doesn't really jive 
with Scripture. We've seen many situations where Jesus was doing miraculous things in the presence of unbelief. So unbelief is not like Superman's kryptonite where Jesus is going along fine and all of a sudden, oh, there's unbelief in the room and uh, what happened? Nothing's working anymore. I have no, my power is gone. Is there unbelief? Who, who's unbelieving in the room and we need to get you out so that I can get my power back and continue on with this healing? I think that would be a false way of viewing faith and the power of Jesus. The absence of power in this context with Jesus had more to do with their unbelief because the plan for the miracles could not be fulfilled when people reject Jesus. The plan of the miracles, do the miracle, draw attention to Jesus, get people to receive and believe Jesus and become disciples, that's the plan. If the miracle is not conducive with the plan, the miracles stop. There's an example of this in Genesis 19 with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with the story, the angel comes down to tell if the city's as bad as it is and decides whether they're gonna fire uh, down, you know, fire and brimstone and destroy the city. But the plan is to save Lot and his household out of the city. And so as the decision has been made, yes, the city is gonna go up in smoke. But the angel rushes Lot and his family out and makes this statement, because I can do nothing until you're gone, until you're out, until you're in your next city. So hurry up and get over there because I can't do it. And the angel was not saying, I don't have the power to do it. He's saying, the plan is it's going to happen when you're not here because you're the one who's gonna get rescued and the rest of the city is gonna be given over to destruction. It's similar to that. It's not that Jesus can't do a miracle. He says it's not according to plan to do a miracle among unbelievers that are not gonna change their heart, that have a fixed position against me because the miracles are designed to provoke faith in Christ and to make disciples. And so it says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. All the amazement, all the marveling that we've seen so far in the book of Mark has been with people towards Jesus. And now all of a sudden the tables are turned and we see Jesus marveling at the people. There are just two times recorded in scripture where Jesus marveled. And one of them is at the faith of the Roman centurion. When the Roman centurion came and expressed and said some things that, that expressed such confident faith and assurance in the power of Christ, it says Jesus was amazed. He was astonished at that man's faith. And now here we have the second time, the second occasion where Jesus marveled, and it is at the unbelief of the people in his hometown. It's amazing what the heart can do. It's amazing when there's a heart of unbelief, how it can so blind and cloud and cause you to refuse to accept the reality that for these people was standing right in front of them. The facts were staring them in the face, but their hearts would not allow them 
to receive it. I've been told, if you know this, flying in an airplane is the safest means of travel. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know that? You can get inside an airplane and fly through the air up thousands of feet and you are safer in that airplane than you are in your car driving home from church today. It is the safest mode of transportation. But there are accidents. Planes do crash. And I have been told that a high percentages of the airplane crashes are due to human error. Not all, but many are due to human error. And of the human errors, one of the most common human errors that causes airplanes to crash is that the pilot simply will not believe what the instruments are telling them. Okay, now I'm going to ask for a show of hands, probably just to the gentleman in the room. How many of you have ever run out of gas in your car? Go ahead and raise your hand. It's good for your pride. Not trying to protect you from anything. Because you looked at that gas gauge, and what did you do? Oh, you knew better, didn't you? That ga gas gauge is saying one thing, but just, you know, there's just something inside me that says there's a little more gas in there. I know it's telling me it's empty, but I really am sure it's going to be okay. I just don't believe what the facts are telling me because I got something else going on in my heart that tells me otherwise. This village has the Savior of the world preaching profound words of wisdom, life-changing pieces of wisdom. He's performing miracles that prove divine power right in front of their eyes. All the gauges are saying one thing, and yet something is stuck in their hearts. It says, I cannot believe it. Somehow I know better. Somehow he can't be that. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Didn't we watch this boy grow up? We know where he went to school and we know where he didn't go to school. So I just know he can't be who he says he is. Jesus just marveled. Can you imagine seeing the village through his eyes, knowing what he knows, and they refused to receive him? As the worship team come on up, I'll conclude here. They got Jesus wrong. They got Jesus wrong, even with Jesus staring him in the face, they would not believe. What can we take away from this, folks? What, what, what can we learn? First, I want, I want to say first, guard your heart from unbelief. 
It's the instruction in Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers and sisters. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer of Hebrews is implying, folks, that not one of us are immune to unbelief. That every one of us can find ourselves in situations we, where we are susceptible to it. And he gives this very important part. No, take care. Be on your guard. Be sharp and be diligent about this. But, but a very big part of the solution. Exhort one another every day. This is back to our communion address and our taking of communion folks we need one another i want you to feel how dangerous and in a sense how stupid unbelief is so that we would be vigilant to guard our hearts against it and that we would realize that this is a community project one to another, help one another not to fall into an evil, unbelieving heart. Don't let it grip you. How are we going to stop each other? We are going to encourage one another daily in the truth of who Christ is. Let's tack onto that an exhortation. Oh, folks, don't isolate yourself. Some of the most difficult times in a, in a disciple's journey causes us to withdraw. Folks, we need to be together. Thanks for coming back to the sanctuary, back to meeting together. We can't afford to be apart too long. I also want to make a qualification here and make this absolutely clear that doubt is not the same as unbelief. Please know this. If you're here and you're struggling with doubts, I'm going to suppose that you feel right now like you're the only one experiencing doubts. Let me just put your mind at ease. How many of you Christians have experienced doubts? Actually, raise your hand, look around the room, be comforted, and know you are not alone for a christian to encounter and experience doubts is a normal part of discipleship we all experience it to differing degrees and for different reasons but hear me friends doubts can be very useful tools to know jesus better to know him more these doubts can drive us to him Having doubts means this, you need to take a closer look at Jesus. If you're doubting, it means you need to see him more up close 
You need to know him more. You need, there's something more about who he is that you need to realize. And that's what your doubts should drive you towards. But doubts can lead us away as well. And unfortunately, the reality is sometimes when our hearts doubt, we tend to run in the wrong direction. And sometimes we, we run to the podcast of the unbeliever and we listen to the voices of, um, oh, I'm doubting. And so we press in and we go more towards unbelieving voices. <laughs> These voices that bring up one truth in order to hide the real important truth. And we seem to dig ourselves deeper and deeper into the hole. Friends, hear me. If you're experiencing doubts, look closer to the Savior for those answers. Jesus was astonished at their unbelief. Let that sober you. If you see the real Jesus and you meet somebody who rejects the real Jesus, it should cause us to be astounded and amazed. Have you ever wondered that? If you know the sweetness of the Savior, say, why wouldn't everybody jump in on this? This is the best deal going. Who could say no to such a Savior? Then folks, don't allow anyone's unbelief to slow you down, to stop you in your mission. The last phrase that we read in our text, Jesus went about among the villages teaching. He kept going. He didn't stop. It didn't mean end of the vision. It didn't mean end of the program. It didn't change him. It didn't change his plans. Disciple, hear this, know this. There will be people that are going to reject this message. As dumb as it appears, they're going to reject it when there's a heart of unbelief. But let's not leave it at that. Let's pray for a work of God's Spirit. Because isn't it true that every one of us in the room, at one point in our past, had a heart of unbelief? And was it not God's Spirit that came and awakened us, raised us from the dead, so to speak, made us alive in Christ, opened our eyes? Oh, some of us were hostile towards the gospel. Some of us really lived out some actual enmity towards God. All of us did, in a sense. All of us came out of some rebellion against God. God rescued us. And I know there's many of you, when, when you read this passage about Jesus and his own family and his own villagers and his, the people that knew him best were rejecting him, you know this, you experience this, you taste this, because some of you have close family members that don't know the Lord. And some of the most painful discussions, some of the most difficult situations. Oh, but let's pray. Let's pray for the Spirit of God to come and make alive what's dead, to take a, an evil, unbelieving heart and transform it and make it new. Let's, let's stand together. Father, do that. I'm sure as I'm praying now, there's there's close family members, close friends coming into the minds of many of the people that are hearing me, that have 
rejected you. And so we pray, we come to you and say, Lord, you saved us. We know you desire to save many. We know you have a plan. Your grace is going to extend to the ends of the earth. You're going to adopt people in from every nation, every tribe. Father, we pray for our family members, our loved ones, our close acquaintances that don't know you. Oh, for hearts that are filled with an evil, unbelieving heart, rejecting such good news. Oh, we pray for work of your spirit to come and change. Save the lost. Save the lost. May we not be dismayed by their unbelief, but be all the more confident in your grace and seek you for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's, let's sing together.